0: On March 10, 2019, Spark Church, in partnership with four other organizations, hosted a public conversation between Justin Lee and Preston Sprinkle on the topic of sexuality, scripture, and the soul of Christianity. If you haven't watched or listened to that event, I highly recommend doing so before listening to these follow-up conversations, because for that event, our main focus was to model and engage in respectful and humble dialogue on one of the most divisive issues facing the church. I'm deeply grateful to both Justin and Preston for holding that space, for them incarnating that ethic, and really being exemplars for the church as a whole for how to have these crucial conversations. Because time is always a frustrating constraint, Justin and Preston have graciously agreed to these follow-up podcast interviews where we address some of the top questions that were submitted and dig far deeper into the implications of each of their views. These interviews are based on that same ethic, and it is our hope that these conversations equip us with a better understanding of the arguments, the theologies, and the humanity of each of the perspectives, ultimately, so that we can all become better followers of Jesus as a result. Without further ado, here is my follow-up interview conversation with Justin Lee. Justin thanks so much for being willing to do this follow-up conversation well first of all thanks for being willing to even do the conversation first with Preston which I thought was a, a pretty significant event um, and in this particular follow-up what I'd like to do is just kind of pick up where we left off with the slido questions um, as you know there were a whole bunch that came through that I just wasn't able to get to and uh, to which I apologize to our audience for prioritizing the live questions over the slido questions but um, hopefully here we'll be able to spend some good amount of time really addressing what those questions are um, and get some good responses. And then at the end of this, um, I'd love to get your reflections and then really transition into talking about what ultimately is at stake and what the, what really is the soul of Christianity in the midst of this conversation and, and where you think the church is going and what needs to happen. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds Sound good right. to me. All right. So the um, I'm just going to start right at the top, so I'm not going to go in any particular order just as basically as they came in. Okay. Um, Elton asks, is it really possible to be a gay-friendly church that is not affirming? Data indicates gay youth at non-affirming churches commit suicide more frequently. And there was another question about um, the suicide rates as well as mental health for LGBT youth. So what say you justin lee <laughs> you know i think it's it's complicated um i mean my
1: my short initial answer is yes it, it's certainly possible and and it's important to recognize that there are um there are plenty of gay and bi christians who are on what i would call side b um the what you might call the non-affirming view—the view that marriage is between a man and a woman—you um, know, we don't we don't talk a whole lot about those folks. But some of my very good friends are gay and Christian and believe that uh, their calling as gay Christians is lifelong celibacy, and so. Certainly, they at the very least are looking for a church that teaches the theology that 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 they believe and that welcomes and accepts and supports them as gay Christians. Um, I think one of the things that's necessary, though, for those churches is to recognize that you know, we we talked a little bit about Eve Tushnet's vocation of no—that you 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 can't just say okay, uh, don't have sex, don't get married. Good luck, you know that, that there needs to be actual active support for how do I live my life and where is my place in the church and what is my vocation and how do I meet my need for human companionship and all of these things? and so at the very least, um those are the things that that those churches need to focus on um now the the question then I think is what about somebody like me who is you know I would say side a, somebody who uh, believes, you know, I I want to get married to a guy someday. Um, And I know side A Christians, side A gay Christians, um, who do go to side B churches. And um, it's not their ideal, but their attitude is, uh, you know, generally, I'm, this is not the only issue in my life. And so As long as I feel fully welcomed and supported for who I am by this congregation, um, I'm okay with not agreeing with 100% of the theology of this church. Um, I know other gay Christians who would say, no, that's not a thing that I would consider. That's not a place that I would feel comfortable. And I think that the the biggest concern that I have is not... um, that particular theological piece, although I do think it's a really important one. And I think we shouldn't understate how important it is. But but for me, like one of the biggest issues is how are people treated? And I think that a lot of side B churches assume that if they're not preaching at us, and if they say everybody's welcome, and smile at us when we walk in the door, that that means we feel fully welcomed and and supported. And uh, anybody who doesn't feel welcomed and supported is just, you know, making a big deal over uh, this one theological disagreement. But there's actually a lot more that needs to happen. And, um, and a lot of it really does go back to, you know, that vocation of no, and and what is the the real day to day situation look like for folks in the congregation. And, um so it's complicated. I think there are a lot of churches that have turned this into such an issue where it's sort of like separate the theology from the person and uh, and then don't—how do I want to say this? Like, don't actually deal with the day-to-day realities that LGBTQ Christians are, are, are living with, um, and, then, and then assume that as long as they're being, you know, not— Unkind that that um, that folks will find what they what they need there, and in fact, a lot of folks end up feeling very unwelcome and, and misunderstood and leave the church entirely. So I do think that that's a that's a, an even bigger problem than the theological disagreement. I didn't yeah, put I had, that very well, but hopefully that makes sense.
0: <laughs> I had somebody tell me that they were going to a church that was non-affirming. He's gay, and after however many years of being there, said. That they were very nice to me and welcoming in that particular sense. But ultimately, I was being tolerated.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I I grew up in a church that was um, very, very white. Uh, and growing up, I remember thinking, gosh, you know, there are almost no people of color in this church. It was a very large church to be so white in an area that was not uh, so white. And, um, and I think that there were a lot of people in that church who thought, well, you know, we're, we don't say anything unkind to people of color. We, we, we welcome everybody. And if only white people choose to come and continue attending, then, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. We're welcoming everybody. And I think that there are a lot of reasons, obviously, why we have the kind of... Um, uh, Racial, sort of racial self segregation that we have uh, on Sunday mornings in, in churches across the country. It's not a simple question, mm. but I do think that it's important when any group of people is not really represented, when people are not showing up, um, or they show up and they don't come back. I think there are a lot of questions that we have to ask, um, and it's not just about did we, you know, make them intentionally make them feel unwelcome. A lot of times, it's just what's not. Present, um, and and a lot of, I think a lot of straight cisgender Christians have not spent a whole lot of time thinking about what the unique needs might be of uh, LGBTQ Christians, and so they assume that we are looking for exactly all the same things in the church, and it doesn't occur to them to question the number of times that uh, you know marriage and family is mentioned in sermons, or the fact that there's a group. For divorced folks, there's a group for folks with young children. There's a group for teenagers. There's a group for older folks. There's a group, you know, all these different groups. But there's no group for LGBTQ folks who may not fit into any of those other groups, you know. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those kinds of things that I think churches need to do that kind of self-examination.
0: It's interesting because you're, you're positing something that seems to be a very simple, um, achievable objective. Start a group of LGBT folks, um, change some of the language that you use. Um, I guess it it feels, it feels like there's this tension though of still not getting away from, um, what my friend's word of tolerating, like that word tolerate is just such a, has such a negative connotation that we will allow you to be a part of this group. But, you know, if you're not affirming in your theology, the, the ultimate end of that is we're we're providing a, a, a coping group for you or where you can share about your struggles. And I mean, is that, is that a fair critique of some of those helps? And I think all of those helps are, you know, obviously attainable for, for many churches, but is that, am I, if I, am I being too harsh on the critique of that? I don't know. Well,
1: you know, it's, it's complicated. I mean, like, if you, if you ask the question this way, um, you know, if you were to start a church that uh you know and I, I did that sort of exercise when we had the in person conversation I said, you know what if what if the church taught that that marriage was not allowed for for straight folks um if you imagine starting such a church and saying, you know this church will our official teaching will be that anybody who's married is living in sin, that that marriage is a sinful, ongoing sinful." Relationship, uh, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna go out of our way to make people feel unwelcome who are who are married, but but we're gonna make sure that everybody knows that it's clear that we don't believe in those marriages. We're certainly not gonna do anything to support or endorse those marriages. Um, if you if you imagine, you know, how many straight married folks do you think would continue to attend that church if that were the case? Uh, I mean, there might be a few. But my guess is that if there were other alternatives, uh, they would take those other alternatives. Probably not a whole lot of married folks would want to go to a church that teaches that their marriage is uh, against the will of God. And so um, there's a similar kind of thing here. Now part of the reality is, for a, a fair number of LGBTQ Christians, um, you know married or not, um, we struggle. To find churches in our communities that welcome us, but are also the kind of churches we're looking for, um, you know, as as an evangelical, um, there are not a whole lot of evangelical churches or churches that read the Bible the way that I do as an evangelical um, that are affirming. And so, you know, there are a lot of folks in my situation who are willing to compromise on some pieces in order to get. Good Bible teaching and and the kind of church that they're looking for, but um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's it's worth noting that yeah, no matter how welcoming and and wonderful and loving you try to be, there are going to be a bunch of folks who say, yeah, I mean, if you think that my day to day existence with my spouse is living in sin, then why would I continue to come here? Mm. Uh, but that's not everybody, and so it's um, and that's what makes it complicated, because I don't want to downplay that and say that that's not important, because it absolutely is. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that's sending a lot of folks out of the church, which I think is super dangerous and, and bad. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, there there are, it's 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 just, it's simply not black and white. And that's one of the things that's so hard about so much of this conversation is we get stuck with folks on both sides yelling at each other, um, as if these were all simple, uh, black and white issues. And the reality is a lot of it's complicated and a lot of it depends on who you're talking about and what their situation is. And, you know, so that's, that's <laughs> probably the best, most nuanced answer I can give you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elton, uh, made a, a question regarding the data, uh, around gay youth and the mental health, um, suicide, depression, homelessness, and, and things like that. Is there anything that you feel is important to say in commenting regarding that? Because uh, the implication that I read from the questions that were submitted is, well, I guess there's two two possible levels of the question. Number one is, what connection can there be made between the theology that the church ultimately teaches, regardless of how affirm uh, how welcoming it is, and the connection between that and the mental health of LGBT youth. And then I, set, I suppose the second level of that question is, what could or should the church be doing better to minister and care for the mental health of gay youth in the church?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so let me address that first part first then. Um, here's where it gets a little tricky. In theory, hypothetically, I would say that um, I don't think I don't think that um holding a again what I would call side B theological view, the non-affirming theological view, not affirming of same-sex marriage, is inherently by itself the cause of that, um, all of that depression and all of the Mm. self-harm and negative things that flow out of it.
0: Mm.
1: However, and this is a big however, I think that a lot of the attitudes, including a lot of the unspoken attitudes that go along with that theology very, very often— are the cause, and or at least a, a major cause. Let me put it that way. I, I don't think there's just one cause. Again, it's not simple. Um, I have been to churches um, all across the country and in a number of other countries as well. And I have been to many churches that... Officially hold a uh, side B theological stance, um, and would say if you asked them, uh, we we want to fully welcome LGBTQ folks here. Uh, we want to fully support them and love them, and we want them to know that we don't think there's anything sinful about their being LGBTQ. Uh, it's just you know same sex sexual behavior that that we think is wrong, and so we can't approve of same sex marriage and. You know, they would say all those things, um they would read the you know Preston's work, and they would say, "We completely agree with everything that he said. Uh, I've been to many churches like that out of all of those churches, I've seen maybe two ever in my life that I would say, actually have cultivated the kind of atmosphere." where I think LGBTQ people would truly feel welcomed and supported. Mm. So I think there's a disconnect between how welcoming these churches think they're being and how welcoming they actually are being. And and so this is the challenge. Because on one hand, when Preston says that, you know, gay teens aren't killing themselves because of a church theological position on same-sex marriage, I think that's right. Uh, I don't think it's that piece, but what what is happening is that piece is kind of um, the the horrible cherry, the poison cherry on top of this. I don't know why I suddenly have a Sunday analogy here, but <laughs> of this 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 horrible Sunday of like um, l- treating people as less than um this this sense that when you come out as lgbtq that it's a that it's a disappointment that it's um that something's wrong with you that y- you're not technically sinning but really we would rather that you not mention that you're lgbtq um certainly don't use that language maybe say that you're struggling with same sex attraction or struggling with your gender identity um and you know and and we don't you know we would really like we don't really want to talk about this a whole lot we're a little concerned about having a, a any kind of support group because we don't know what direction that's going to go in and and there's always this sense of like you're you're even when people are trying to be nice it's like you are a perpetual burden it's like being here's here's an analogy it's like being invited as a guest into somebody's home, and they're very nice, and they don't ever intentionally make you feel unwelcome. But once you've been staying in their home for a certain period of time, you start to feel like you're overstaying your welcome. You start to mm-hmm. feel like you're a burden on them because you're not, it's not your home, it's the home you've been invited into by somebody else who's putting up with you. Mm. That's how it feels. And that's where I think a lot of that depression starts to come from. Because that's not a good place to be day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And that's at the best. And very few of those churches even get to that point because often there are a lot of things that are said behind the scenes that, you know, people don't know that other people are hearing. And, and just, you know, there's just a lot of this negativity that, you know, when you're in a place where people don't really want you to be there, you feel it. And so, yeah, I think that's really what's going on. And I don't want to limit it to just talking about like, like suicide, because the depression that exists for a lot of LGBTQ folks is extremely common, even among folks who don't ever get to the point of being suicidal.
0: You're, I'm really intrigued by your response, because if I may, it feels like what you just said there is in contradiction to your opening salvo, which is, yes, it is possible for a non-affirming church to be welcoming and truly welcoming. So, at one particular level, I hear you saying that it is possible, that there are things that can be done. But this last explanation leaves me with the sense of the hurdle of getting there is so large, it feels some, in some ways insurmountable. Because the attitude and the posture that people have towards homosexuality, towards LGBTQ, towards whatever terminology that they use stems from this deep theological conviction that something really isn't in accordance with God's ultimate will and plan. As a result of that, it can only lead you to some, some sense of marginalization, and therefore anybody who happens to be gay will never truly fully experience that welcome into somebody's home you will always be a guest it will never be your home um so it sounds to me like a tall order it, or it sounds to me like a, a contradiction or it sounds to me like yes it's possible but you know only in heaven <laughs> you know yeah um is that i don't know uh I, I don't i don't want to push too hard on this but um like, when, when you use that analogy, like, you're always a guest in somebody else's home, that, that there's always, there's always, there's something still there. In a non-affirming church, that's not going away unless the theology changes. Am I right? I think that
1: it maybe theoretically, with a lot of work, could, or at least could be a lot better. Mm. Um, but it is a tall order. And this is why, I mean, here's why this is such a difficult question, honestly, because on the one hand, if I were to say to you, um, there is no way that a church that believes that God's will for, for marriage is between a man and a woman, there is no way that a church that believes that could love and welcome and be a good place for LGBTQ folks. Um, first of all, it I mean, that doesn't account for the folks, as I said, who I know who are LGBTQ and and right. hold that theology. Right. But also, want that... What that does is that's shutting down the conversation. It, it's mm. it, Essentially, it's saying, it, unless you believe to be true what I believe to be true, there's nothing more for us to talk about. Mm. And I don't think that that's helpful. Because yeah, if yeah. you read the Bible and you pray about it and you study it and, and you want with all your heart to believe that God would bless same-sex marriage, but you just don't see it. I can think that you're wrong, but I can't force you to believe something is true that you don't believe is true, and 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 I can't ask you to behave as if something were true that you don't believe is true, and so, so I don't think that that's helpful. And yet, at the same time, um, and and, and I do think that that any church, any side B church in America, there are things, practically speaking, that could be done that would make. Those churches much safer, more welcoming places for LGBTQ folks, and would save lives spiritually and physically.
0: Mm.
1: And so that's what I choose to focus on. Yeah. That said, though, I mean, y- y- yeah, I it's a it's a it's a tall order, and I think one of the things I'm honestly that I'm afraid of is that, and this is one of the places where. Preston and I, I think this is, this is, you know, if we had more time, if we had hours and hours to have this conversation, uh, Preston and me, um, this is one of the places that I think is really tough,
0: yeah.
1: is that I, while I absolutely believe what I just said, that it's important for that conversation to remain open and there are things that Side B churches can do to be more loving, it is also true that the, with the rise in conversation where folks like Preston um, who is not LGBTQ, are, are talking to churches about how to become more welcoming as, as side B churches. Um, one of the things that I fear is churches thinking that they've arrived— yeah. Because they use the right terminology and because they're not right. preaching fire and brimstone and not realizing that there's still a million things happening in these churches that are making life difficult for LGBTQ folks and are still crushing folks' souls. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's sort of like watching uh, watching movies, you know, as a white guy, when, when, when I watch, uh, you know, a movie like Hidden Figures, which I love, it's a great film, um, and I see the, like, overtly racist white characters who are like you know won't let the black characters use the same bathroom that kind of thing and I look at that and I say well I'm not like that therefore I've arrived and there's nothing else I need to worry about in terms of racism like it's like okay mm, this step one (laughs) right there are a lot more steps yeah
0: Yeah. Uh, this is why I so appreciate so appreciate how you approach things and why nuances. I mean, it's something that you and I share. That giving these pat answers, um, it just it just doesn't fulfill the the complexities of each particular inquiry. Um, all right, so let me move on. Um, this is related, actually. An anonymous person asked, "What might be the first three things churches need to do to become true, quote unquote, family to those who don't have family, gay or not? What work needs to happen now?" So much more practical question.
1: Yeah, Um, It's always tough to answer a question about like what three things just because it varies (laughs) so much. But um, off the top of my head, here's what I would say. I think one of the first things that needs to happen is um, LGBTQ folks who are in the congregation need to be offered the opportunity to be part of Figuring out what that looks like and and answering that question. Um, this is not, you know, again, if if you're hoping to build a space that I as a gay Christian will feel welcome in, and you want to build the space for me to enter into and and be present, it's still me being a guest in your home. Um, if you want a space that feels like home to me, then. I should at least have the opportunity, and maybe I won't take you up on the opportunity, but I should at least have the opportunity to help design what that space is because I know best what it is that I really need and and what it is that would make me feel welcome. And what make, makes me feel welcome may be very different from what makes, you know, somebody else who is gay or bi or trans or queer feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it, I think that's the the number one thing, and um and 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 keeping those lines of communication open, um, that also makes the difference between LGBTQ folks being valued for what we bring to the table as opposed to um seeing us as the poor souls who need to be reached out to. Um, yeah. because if the I uh, you know if the idea is that the the non-LGBTQ folks are the ones who can be trusted to build the structures of the church you know? and the LGBTQ folks can't because we're broken in some specific way. Then again yeah, it's like yeah. you know, how am I going to feel welcome there? Um, yeah. I think but I think also um, very often what's helpful is to have space for LGBTQ folks to gather, to socialize, to have Bible study together, um, whatever, just the same as many churches, you know uh you know have singles groups or have groups for older adults or groups for you know as i mentioned earlier you know there there are the larger the church you know the more of these groups you have but but even in relatively small churches there are often opportunities for people who have similar life experience in one way or another to to get together um and that creates a a, a sense of community and particularly for churches that believe that you know somebody like me should never be allowed to get married um Community becomes very, very important. Uh and and even if I do plan to get married someday, which I do, I'm single now and community is very important. Right. Yeah. Um Yeah. And and yeah. yeah, well, that's two right off the top of my head. So the third one would probably look really different depending on the church and the yeah. and the setting. But I think those two would be a good start.
0: I'm struck with the catch twenty two of your first one though, because um, you know, how do you Jeez, oh, I don't even know how to ask the question because if you are non-affirming, or if you're even trying to develop a, uh, a, a yeah, outreach isn't even in the right word, right? It's uh, you want to make sure that you're caring appropriately for all the people within your community. Um, how how do those people become a part of your community, right? In the first place, if if you don't ultimately have some sort of public posture towards that community, so it's it's um, it's a challenge for. <laughs> That's the great catch twenty-two of it all. Um, well, and let's actually, maybe that's oh, go the ahead. third
1: thing. Then is that transparency? Transparency about this is where we are, and and we want mm. to learn. Um, that willingness to learn can be a a big thing. Um, mm. I think it it matters if I say, as a guy, I don't know what women in this situation are are dealing with and how their experience of this particular community may be different from mine. And I'm willing to learn as a white person, I'm willing to learn from my friends of color, you know, like to say I'm willing to learn, um, is really different than
0: I know what the answer is and I'm going to fix it for you. I'm so glad you said that. That's huge. Um, I I was thinking as you were saying that, that even though you may not a either have, LGBT folks in your community, or B, know that you have them in your community, because uh, those are two very real possibilities. They're just simply being vulnerable and open and curious to, there's people in your congregation that do and that have connections and have conversations that have, are in communities, whether that be in the workplace or with their family groups or whatever. Um, and they they there's always a starting point to learn and listen. And as soon as you start getting curious, which I love curiosity as Mm. the opposite of fear Mm -hmm. and the opposite of fundamentalism and the opposite of so many detrimental um, psychological postures. So once you're curious, um, the whole world will open up in front of you. It was so funny, um, if I can just add this, I was having a conversation with um, some of the people after the event, and this idea of vulnerability and curiosity and opening up questions came up. And one of the things that I Noticed that I think a lot of church leaders really struggle with, and I've heard this from multiple churches is that people in church leadership, whether that be elder, pastor, whatever, have this unspoken kind of fear and feeling that they have to have their ducks in a row before they can go before the congregation and share what it is that they have <laughs> in behind closed doors or whatever, yeah. uh, come up with or decided. And one of the things that we've done at Spark that we've really tried to, we're obviously imperfect, but one of the things we've striven for is we don't have it all together, and what we need, actually, is the entire congregation to journey with us together. Um, I ask congregants, like, so what do you think? What's God speaking to you um, as the pastor of that church to make sure that I'm not making the decision, but that we together are making the decision? And my mind has been shaped so much by listening to my people and involving them at the very beginning in the process of discernment and and discussion. So
1: Yeah. Well and and you know it and I think it's worth uh also noting that it's not just LGBTQ folks. Um it's also, right. you know, as you suggest, there there are other folks who are asking these questions and most especially right. parents. And so like I've heard from a lot of parents that they're afraid to talk about this. In their congregations. And yet, if somebody were to say, hey, you know, we want to learn from you, from you parents, like, what support do you need as you go on this journey? And as you're wrestling with what the Bible says, and you're wrestling with how to be the parent of this child who, you know, you thought was your son and now identifies as your daughter or whatever, like, you know, what does this look like for you? We we want to hear from you how we can help support you in the journey that you're on and whatever. I think the fear so many people have is that you're going to Walk into this space and all the, the answers are going to have been decided, and then people are going to make a judgment about you right away about whether or not you fit into all of the answers that they've already decided. And they don't even know anything about you and they don't know your yeah. journey. And they've decided everything about everything without even getting to know you. And so that, that transparency that you're talking about, I think, is so valued. Um, and again, there are a lot of folks. Who are going to say no? I'm not going to go to a church until it does have all its ducks in a row, and they're in the row that I think they should be in. <laughs> but I think there are a lot of people who, if given the opportunity, would say, "Yeah, I would like to be part of this conversation and part of helping to shape a space for the sake of others." You know, and and to recognize that I have something to contribute to this because this is a journey that I've been on, and I can tell you something about yeah. what it's like.
0: Yeah, that's a good word. Uh, we need to we need to radically shift the culture of church leadership um, in that particular sense. And if we could do that, that could make a world of difference for all of this. That's amazing, um, Justin. The probably the biggest questions for you that came in the heaviest ones are really the biblical interpretation ones. And so, <laughs> want to give you some time to address. There's two questions here that I think are related. Um, an anonymous person asked, "Does Justin believe gay sex is a sin or not?" pretty straightforward question there. Uh, And then Daniel asks, Justin, can you sum up why you think that your interpretation of the biblical passages leads you to believe that God would support same sex marriage? And there's other smattering questions that are very similar, but basically comes down to, you know, how you read the Bible and what support can you give to your position?
1: Right. Well, I'm not surprised. That's that's where the conversation goes very, very often. And I think that's an important question. I think it's important that it not be the first <laughs> place we go because it tends to make folks feel like issues rather than people. And yes, as yes. we've just been talking about, there are many ways that people can be welcomed and treated better even while we disagree on issues. But yeah, this is not something we should ignore. So um, for anybody for whom it was not clear... Uh, I am in full support of same sex marriage uh and that would include sex um i I believe that the same standards that apply to married uh you know to straight married couples would apply to gay married couples um and and i I recognize that this is a at this point it is a minority position within the church um it's also a growing position within the church and um i i take that seriously um when i first started in this work uh i people would that was like one of the first questions everybody would ask me when, when when i first started i wasn't sure what my view was it took me time to figure it out but once i decided no actually i think after a lot of bible study uh i got to the point where i was like no i i actually think god blesses same sex marriage um and that's and that's worth saying. It actually was was uh, it was a, a a pretty intense period of Bible study that led me to that uh, conclusion. But um, but even when I got there, when people would ask me like, "What's your biblical support for this?" Um, by that point, I knew very well what my biblical support was, but I was really reluctant to uh, to write about it, partly because. I'm like I don't want anybody to come to this conclusion because I said so and here's the, you know here are all the answers. I I really wanted folks to search the scriptures for themselves and pray about it and and um it's been really gratifying to see a lot of other Christians uh including a lot of folks who are not LGBTQ, uh LGBTQ folks who are um biblical scholars and very, you know, well-respected Christian leaders um come more and more to that conclusion. And for some of the same reasons independently, uh, to me, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, but it is, it's a complicated issue to wrestle with because there are lots of different pieces to the, to the, uh, to the puzzle. So like I have in, in my book, Torn, I spend a couple chapters talking about it, uh, on my website at geekyjustin.com, I have a long essay that I wrote like 13 years ago when, you know, folks kept asking me and I posted this long essay and then I have a video on my YouTube channel, uh, which is youtube.com slash geekyjustin, where, you know, I have like a 30 minute video called, um, the Bible, homosexuality and nuance, where I dig into this. So obviously I can, uh, I don't think you want a 30 minute answer from me, um, <laughs> but and even that video is like an overview <laughs> right so any the i just want to i will give you an answer but i want to say up front one of the challenges with answering this question is that it is this is such a complicated question that any short answer i give is by necessity going to gloss over a lot of stuff and leave people going, oh, but he didn't address this or he didn't address that or, you know, this doesn't seem like a very strong argument because I didn't, you know, get into the details of it. And so um, that's the the challenge of it.
0: It reminds me of a quote from N.T. Wright who says that the problem with saying anything is that you can't say everything. (laughs) I'll have to use that. I hadn't heard that one, but that's absolutely right well uh, g- go ahead and share and then we'll dig into some some aspects that may pop into <laughs> that may seem relevant to dig a little bit further into <laughs> right
1: so um I think it's worth noting right off the bat that um it, it it's it's n- like w- from the beginning from 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 Genesis on uh you know God tells us you know it it's not good that the man should be alone. Uh, and and uh, the man, in this case, is uh, Adam, Adam, humanity. Um, God creates this first person and is saying, you know, it's not good that, that this person should be alone. And um, it's interesting to me that, I mean, Adam is not, Alone, if you count the fact that God is there, people will often say, Well, I mean, you know, God is sufficient. And that's that's certainly true. God is sufficient. And yet, here's God creating the first person and not saying, Adam, I'm sufficient for you, but rather saying, Hmm, this person needs someone else to be with and creates Eve. And people make a lot out of the fact that, like, the first two people were a man and a woman but of course they were i mean just like biologically without a man and a woman you know how do you get procreation i mean you know so like it's it's uh that was was obviously a, a necessity but like i don't think that the fact that the very first like the the focus of this story is not on um the the gender difference here the focus of the story is actually on the fact that God wants to meet Adam's need for companionship and find somebody who's similar enough to him, somebody who God actually makes out of His own flesh um, to be a companion. You know, God brings all the animals to Adam, and none of them are are a good f- companion, which is such a weird story. Um, so, right from the beginning, we get this sense that that God understands that we are created for this kind of. Um, Human connection, human companionship, and throughout history, there have been plenty of folks who didn't feel the the particular need for that folks who felt uh, very um you know happy in in celibacy, but uh even Paul you know says, uh you know, I wish you all were as I am, but it's better to marry than to burn with passion I mean there's this sense throughout scripture that not everybody's cut out to be celibate, and that God cares." About marriage, that God cares about people uh, having that kind of human connection. And so it seems like the default would be for us to say, well, if there are some people for whom that connection is only possible with another person, another person of the same sex, and we look at those relationships and we see good fruit coming out of them, um, and we see that these people make each other better just as straight couples uh you know the the best straight relationships uh, both partners kind of make each other better and push each other to to be better people and you know um if we see that same thing in same sex relationships and we do then it seems like a kind of a well duh thing like of course we would extend marriage to them as well um and so the the primary reason i think that we don't well i think there are two primary reasons i think one is that historically Um, Until fairly recently in history, because gay folks are a minority of the population, most cultures assumed that everybody was straight or at least had the capacity for uh, heterosexuality. And so there wasn't really a cultural conversation. And in cultures where uh, reproducing and, uh, you know, carrying on the the community was important in that way, um, it was just assumed that everybody was going to, you know, Get heterosexually married, and so there, there's there's not been a, a history of cultural support for same-sex marriage. Um, but then also, I think for for modern Christians, the big question is the Bible, and in particular, the fact that there are several mentions of same-sex sexual behavior in sinful contexts. And so you get, for instance, people referring to the Sodom story. But the Sodom story is about an attempted gang rape of angels. Um, and you know there's nothing in that story that suggests that the city of Sodom was a, a gay city or that the people involved were gay um it's It's a threat, it's a violent threat um, and I've written about this at length, but um that's one example, but you have you know in Romans one, you have um idol worshippers who engage in same sex sex rights um as as part of this idol worship and um, in Leviticus, this um, prohibition against man lying with man that comes in the midst of a whole bunch of other prohibitions um, that that have religious significance, things that are associated with temple prostitution or with pagan worship practices, and, and so they're forbidden for the Israelites. But, um, but none of this is about same-sex marriage. None of this is dealing positively or negatively with same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage as a concept is never discussed in, in Scripture. And so a lot of folks have assumed, since we have these negative uh, examples of same-sex sexual behavior, that that means that all same-sex sexual behavior, even in a marriage, would be sinful. But to me, that's very similar to saying, well, you know, tax collecting is is treated negatively in scripture, so let's condemn modern IRS agents, but we know very well that what the tax collectors are spoken negatively of for was the practices of that day. That, like, there's a reason that Jesus's contemporaries looked at tax collectors negatively, and it wasn't just about the collecting of taxes, but it was about what was going on there. And um, there are many other cases, like when we see, uh, you know, passages about, um, you know, men having short hair and women not speaking in church and all these things, where we take that same kind of cultural approach. So I I think um, just based on that, I don't think there's any reason to forbid same-sex marriage.
0: Yeah. I I think this is a really critical point that we need to push further on and really illuminate. And let's see if I can sum it up, because, and your video is fantastic on this, at least in the the summation of it and how you articulate the The main difference that I see in this hermeneutic, hermeneutic being the complicated word that means how we interpret or make meaning from particular passages or particular texts. the The main hermeneutical difference seems to be what I hear you and others on the the side A side saying is that there are very specified contextual realities that must be taken into consideration. When interpreting a particular text, and the other way of doing that is not to see specific contextual um, context, but to see universal principles expressed in particulars. Right. Does that yeah? Does that make sense? Like yeah, I think that's right. That's that seems to be the major hermeneutical divide,
1: and, and, and I think that's the challenge: is that you can read these texts in either of those ways. Um if you look at the context of each of these passages, if you, you know, dig into the historical and literary and cultural and uh you know so forth context of these passages, um there are very specific reasons why the behaviors that are being condemned would be condemned. You can say, well, there's a you know, the bigger principle is all same-sex sexual behavior and and draw that back to Adam and Eve. Um, And that would be one way to interpret the the text. But it's not the only way. And I don't think that it is even the most um, obvious or reasonable way, except for the fact that since there's been a a kind of cultural history that's also been, you know, within the church, of um, disapproval of same-sex sexuality, that that's just, it's, it's, people don't question it. It's like, well, of course, this is how it is. And this is one reason that, you know, on stage, I talked about slavery, and I brought up this, this point of, of slavery and how the church historically looked at slavery. And it's not because slavery is in any sense the same conversation as same-sex marriage. But the similarity is that, again, folks who in that case were, you know, in, in support of slavery Argued that you have all of these specific instances of uh, slavery being allowed in scripture, and it forms a uh, a general principle that God allows slavery, and uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And and that was what the culture also allowed, and so it just seemed reasonable. It seemed like the most natural way to read the text, and and you can't always make that leap. But uh, I think you're right in how you characterize it, and for me. Ultimately, um, I think that if that were where the whole argument were, just which of these hermeneutics are you going to use, um, I think that you could make a strong argument either way, and that's part of where in my book um, I talk about feeling torn. Uh, one of the one of the instances of being torn that that uh, gave the book its title, because you really could read the text either of these ways for me what pushes me over is seeing a lot of other things it's the fruit the the really bad fruit that i've seen come from the way the church has handled this in the past and the good fruit of same-sex couples and the, and seeing that good fruit as really inconsistent with the fruit of sin it's mm. um looking at the reasons why not just the fact that the bible puts great emphasis on uh, you know, the um, the importance of marriage and sexual fidelity in marriage and avoiding sexual morality and all this stuff, but also looking at the reasons why, what's behind uh, those things, why does the Bible tell us that these things are important, and seeing that none of those things would forbid uh, same-sex marriage and, in fact, would seem to support same-sex marriage. It's seeing the um, it's it's even it's it's looking at how Jesus cared for people when you know talk about the Sabbath how Jesus, um, you know, looked at how to apply rules in situations where you know what work can you do on the Sabbath where it might be unclear and you could argue scripturally, well you can't do this or you can do that, and Jesus. Every time goes to this idea of, but yeah, but what's the impact on real people? Which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, and you know he's and and that wonderful example of if your child fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull him out? Like at some point you have to go, um, okay, why did this rule exist? The rule certainly did not exist. For you to leave your child in a well overnight. That was not the point of resting on the Sabbath. Right. And so it's th- all of these kinds of things that for me build and build and build, looking at the fruit, looking at the spirit over the letter, looking at how Jesus treated um, these kinds of uh controversial questions. Um and uh and, and even things like Paul talking about um, you know, what what sin is in in Romans 13, eight to ten. All of these things, for me, add up to um, it doesn't make sense to take what I I think ultimately becomes a kind of legalistic approach, where we say, if two people get married uh, and commit their lives to each other in a Christ-centered relationship, it is either a beautiful, holy thing that we should celebrate and support with all that we've got, or it's a uh, an abominable disgusting thing that should be condemned to the pits of hell and the only difference is the gender of the person and then we even know people for whom being 100 percent sure about their gender is is not always possible because gender is complicated and chromosomes don't always match genitals don't always match you know whatever like at some point that just feels to me like it's such splitting hairs um, and the fruit of it has been so negative that that's what ultimately leads me to go, I th- that's why I think one hermeneutic makes way more sense than the other.
0: Well, and I kind of want to push even further on that. I mean, you, you said in there that you could read the text either way. And and if I heard you correctly, you in some way supported the merits of both ways of reading the text. Did I hear that correctly? Just to make sure I'm well. I heard what you said. I guess what I'm trying to say there
1: is that I don't, I think it's a wrong way of reading the text, but I don't think it's an entirely unreasonable Mm. way. I mean, I would argue that you could still, I would still come to the hermeneutic that I came to without all that other stuff. But for me, it would at least be a disputable question, I think. And then all this other stuff for me is just so much weight on the other side. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I think I wanted to just... uh... I mean I'm, my bias is going to show here but <laughs> the, <laughs> I you know we all have them so I I might as well be transparent about it it just feels as if you if you do not take into consideration all of the things that you just mentioned which is in some ways hermeneutics 101 it's interpretation 101 what was its context right that's that's like basic if you don't do that and allow that to greatly inform how you read a text how you interpret and then how you pl- apply and then live a particular teaching you run the risk of well you don't run the risk you actually do prioritize how you read something rather than what was attempting to be communicated and so applying a universal moral principle to every single text just simply because we 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 believe that that's wrong and so therefore we see it and it doesn't matter what the particulars of that context are, just does feel to me like you're not actually listening carefully to what the authors are trying to communicate. And especially when it comes to genre, when it comes to history, um, and all of that stuff, if we don't take that into consideration, then we're actually not listening carefully to what's really going on and and what the biblical writers are trying to do. Um
1: yeah. I mean, I think, so, I think that's what we have to do. I mean, it's, it is what we do in any other situation. When we look at a right. passage that says, you know, uh, that uh, women shouldn't speak in church, we have a conversation about, okay, well, what's going on in the culture that Paul would say women shouldn't speak in church? Is this an eternal command that women have to, like, stop talking the minute they enter a church? That doesn't seem right. Um, well, you know, Or if your
0: right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, <laughs> and your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You know, yeah. there's at the very least virtually everybody and i will say virtually because i'm sure that there's some people out there that will take that literally and and mechanically but virtually everybody understands the genre of the language in that passage yeah. of what he's trying to communicate so
1: yeah. yeah and so similarly if you if you read romans 1 it's very easy if you don't know anything about history to read romans 1 especially in certain English translations and to come away with the idea that Paul is on a on a rant against uh, societal acceptance of homosexuality in general as you know I always put homosexuality in quotes because I'm like you know it's like it's like talking about heterosexuality it's such a broad term Um, but but it it doesn't make sense I mean like Paul is not making an argument against same-sex marriage that's That wouldn't make sense for who he was writing to, when he was writing, where he was writing. And even the point that he's making at the end of that chapter and the beginning of the next, um, none of that fits with this idea that Paul is making an argument about same-sex marriage. That's not what's concerning Paul as he's writing this. And so to read that into the text is is to take the text out of its context and apply it in a way that ignores the the actual principles behind what's being said uh in in the name of giving us something that we can apply to our lives today without thinking about it. And I do think that the Bible speaks to our lives today in many 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 ways. I mean that's as a Bible believing Christian, that's mm-hmm. why I'm a Bible believing Christian. But you you have to read the you have to read the text um with some understanding that, you know, like, this is why we need someone to explain to us, what does it mean when Jesus talks about wineskins? We don't have wineskins anymore. So, what is he actually talking about? Or, or, you know, why are the tax collectors treated as such sinners? What's going on? What's so bad about tax collecting? Like, we need historians and scholars to help us understand what's going on so that Mm -hmm. then we can intelligently apply the text
0: today. Yeah. I'm going to ask this of both you and Preston in these follow-up podcasts. I I've kind of summed this up in one phrase that I I think works for me, but I, I want to get your thoughts on it. The question that ultimately hovers over all this is this question: is what we're talking about now what they were talking about then? And I'm kind of curious if that question works for you. If there's nuances to that question that seem to uh, that you would have reflections on. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean. Um, I mean, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I don't think, I don't think that in any of these passages, what they were talking about uh, is what we're talking about now when we're having a conversation about LGBTQ folks. Um, and I think there's lots of evidence, and we could spend a lot of time digging into the passages and getting into this evidence. But I think there's lots of evidence in the text itself um, to to show us that, that, that what right. you know, what they're talking about is not what we're talking about. Ultimately yeah. for me, I mentioned that it was Bible study that brought me to a side A view. Um it wasn't it wasn't spending lots of time going over and over again about how should we translate the words arsenicoitai and Malachoi and <laughs> right. first Corinthians or whatever. It was it was reading the the Bible as a whole taking a step back from just looking for are there passages that mention, quote, homosexuality? Um, Because one of the reasons I don't like that word homosexuality is it glosses over the difference between what we're talking about now and what they were talking about then. What they were talking about then could be classified as homosexuality, and what we're talking about now could be classified as homosexuality, but they're actually very different things. And so, um, but going away from just that to see, like, what does the Bible say about marriage, about um, sexual morality, um, about God's design for us, but also what does the Bible say about law, about grace, about what it yeah. looks like when we do the right thing, about what it looks like when we do the wrong thing, about you know how to please God and what's important and all of these things. And as, as I was studying the Bible on all of that, that's where I was like, I saw all these patterns and all these consistent messages that led me to the position that, that I have now.
0: Yeah. And even just a modern kind of uh, study, the word homosexuality is actually a fairly modern term, a recent term to tr- to describe something that was happening in the psychological world. Yeah, um, And so to make a ethical equivalency between the term homosexuality and a biblical term, arsenicoite or whatever, um, also is a choice of hermeneutic that um, – Decontextualizes perhaps what's really going on in both contexts both the ancient context as well as the modern context yeah. um so words like homosexual orientation um all of those words um have particular connotations so and one of my um, and,
1: and I just want to say real quick one of my frustrations yeah. when we have that conversation is that um when we read the bible in english we we miss a lot of that nuance oh yeah um oh yeah one of the the most egregious examples is in the NIV, uh, which is the Bible that I read growing up. And when I was uh, when I was a kid, and I was reading First Corinthians six nine, it said uh, uh, "homosexual offenders" and "male prostitutes" to translate these two different words, and then they quietly retranslated those two words and stuck them together and said "men who have sex with men." Mm. Well. That's really different, um, yeah. you know, and 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 so unfortunately, and I wish it weren't th- the case, but unfortunately, the conversation that's happening in the church and the, the theological views of the translators then influence how they translate the text. And then we yep. read that text, assuming that, you know, that because of the spirit's involvement in the translation that, you know, we can just like take it <laughs> exactly as it is, but I wish it were that simple, but it's not. And that becomes a real problem because somebody says, well, the Bible's really clear here. And it's like, well, you, you sound like you're nitpicking if you say, well, actually, let's go back to the Greek and let's go back to the the cultural context or whatever. But the thing is, that's what we do when we interpret any passage
0: correctly. Uh, there's another example of that that you I don't know if you're familiar with the translation of the word junia in Romans 16, um, but that has a very similar a trajectory that for many years, and I don't have all the data in my head, but it's it's in his J. Eldon Epps book on Junia. Um, that name, which is a Greek feminine name in Romans 16, um, who describes Junia and Andronicus as outstanding among the apostles, which is usually an indication, m- most scholars would suggest that she actually was an apostle, was translated feminine, Junia, for. Several years, and then all of a sudden, Bible translators translated Junias, which would be a male name, mm-hmm. uh, right around the women's suffrage movement. So, because of the implications that there was a female apostle listed in Romans sixteen, and uh, it's only been within recent years that translators are translating it back. And that that that's an example of like a blatant mistranslation of a text. So, yeah, even in the English, uh, to do that. I mean that that's just that's an explicit interpretation imposed upon a biblical translation. Yeah. So that's that's a more explicit way but and I hate that. Some,
1: I hate that because I we don't We should hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I not only hate that that happens, but I hate that we have to say that because I don't I I'm not the sort of uh the sort of Christian or the sort of theologian who wants to like pick everything apart. You know, I I think I think sometimes you can pick things apart to death to the point that, you know, you you, uh, you know, you miss the forest for the trees. uh, And that's not the way that I approach scripture. And yet and yet, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that these things are real issues. And so we do have to take them into consideration.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let me get to a couple more. Hey, that was great, Justin. Thanks. Uh, Let me get to a couple more questions and then we'll try to sum up um, because I I know your your time is so precious and I really appreciate it. Um, Why do Justin and Preston think the church cares so much about personal sexual behaviors? Why is this such a divisive issue in the church in the first place?
1: Well, two things. First, I think um, when we talk about sex, uh, sex matters for a a bunch of reasons. one of which is that the Bible makes a big deal about sex. Um, I think, in a culture that increasingly treats sex as um, almost inconsequential, like almost a handshake, uh, it, it's it's understandable that the church pushes back against that and says, "No, actually, it matters. Uh, sexual morality matters." Um, because the Bible says that it matters, God says that it matters, and we get specific reasons in Scripture talking about, you know, the the temple of the Holy Spirit and and all of that. Um, so I think that's a a piece of it. That said, I think sometimes we go overboard. Um, I I grew up uh, at, at sort of the height of the True Love Waits movement, um, hmm. and one of the things that i realize now looking back that i didn't realize at the time because i was very active in the true love weights movement and the idea that you know you, you should be a virgin when you get married one of the things i didn't realize at the time was that emphasis not on um not on the decisions you make today but on this idea of virginity when you get married is that for folks who had been victims of sexual assault sexual abuse rape Um, folks who had uh, had sex even one time, you know, and looked at it as a mistake or whatever, they couldn't be virgins when they got married. And that the language that we used at the time and the the emphasis we put on it made a lot of folks um, feel unredeemable, which if there's anything that's not a Christian concept, that's not a Christian concept. And um, there were certain, you know... Uh, there were, there were many other sins that existed in the church that folks could sort of say, oh, well, you know, you can ask for forgiveness for that. But then when a a girl showed up pregnant at church, all of a sudden, you know, she was uh, a pariah. And so I do think we sometimes go overboard, but I think it's understandable that that the church pushes back against a culture that just says sex doesn't matter. Mm. Um... That's not the only thing going on, though, I don't think. I think one of the other things that's going on is that... Um, is, sex is, is... We are sexual beings as, as human beings. And um, questions of sex and gender... Um, there's a lot psychologically for us when we have these conversations. It's like when you, when you talk about your parents having sex for most people it's deeply uncomfortable to think about the idea of their parents or their children having sex there's there's certain stuff that's sort of how our brains are wired you know and so when we start talking about sex and sexuality there are a lot of psychological things like that that, that kind of the ick factor that make us uncomfortable having certain conversations or thinking about certain things so i think i think that also factors into it um, and there are probably other reasons as well. Um, I do think sex matters. I think um, sex is, uh, you know, when sex is treated as a plaything, people get not only spiritually, but psychologically damaged. And, you know, you have, you know, STDs and all kinds of other things. We can talk about all that. However, yeah. here's the other thing I want to say This is not primarily, uh, this conversation we're having is not primarily a conversation about sex. And one of the frustrations for me as as a gay Christian is that from the moment I first said that I was gay, um, by far the 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 vast majority of Christians who uh, want to discuss this with me and the theology of being gay and all this stuff approach it from the standpoint of talking about sex, and for me, being gay is not about sex. Um, Sexuality is certainly a, a a piece of it, just as it's for straight folks. But it's like when I'm talking about wanting to get married someday, it's not a question of wanting to have sex um, any more than it is for, you know, for any straight person who wants to get married. Yeah, sex is a piece of that. But if you couldn't have sex with your spouse... um. I think a lot of folks would still say it's you know, marriage is still worth it, even without sex. Even if you were, you know, even if you were asexual. Um, so it's frustrating to like have the conversation always come back to sex because the vast majority of the concerns and frustrations that not just gay but LGBTQ folks have in the church are not about sex. For transgender folks, is really a question, not a question of sex. Um, and and so yeah, that's that's the other piece I want to say.
0: I think you've illustrated and articulated the great poetic and ecclesiological irony, irony and predicament that the church is somewhat in, in that that you've articulated that we've made much about sex because we are pushing away from a culture that is making much about sex. But then at the same time, we respond to challenges like this only about sex. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, yeah, (laughs) that (laughs) we are... We're a weird group, aren't we? <laughs>
1: um, Christians aren't uh, perfect, uh, just forgiven,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> oh dear Lord, let's let's start spouting off bumper, bumper stickers. stickers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an anonymous person asked this uh, question, and um, I- I'm going to try to interpret it because I think the there might be some words missing here. Um, how do you grieve for someone in an LGBTQ plus? without making them feel that something is wrong, something about them is wrong with them or lesser than. Um, And as I read that question a couple times, I guess there could be a couple interpretations, but one of them is like, how do you grieve for someone in an LGBTQ relationship without making them feel that something is wrong about them? Um, But I also think that there might be another way of interpreting that question, which is how do you grieve for someone who is LGBTQ plus without making them feel that something about them is wrong. And I think um I'd like to add to that. I had a congregant once tell me um who is fully affirming that they still would not want their child to be gay not because they think there's something wrong but because they know the challenges, how hard it is that there's still discrimination, that there's, you know, this uphill battle. And so I think maybe something about that is also imbued in that question.
1: Yeah well, I think I think ultimately you can you can grieve for the pain that somebody experiences. Um, you can say and and this requires listening first to hear the story and not just making assumptions, but you can say, "I am so sorry that that person treated you that way. I am so sorry that." Um, that community made you feel that way. Um, I'm so sorry that this part of your journey has been um, so challenging for you. Um, none of those things are saying there's something wrong with you. It's saying you've experienced hardship, as we all have as human beings. Um we experience hardship, but we experience it in different ways. And and one of the best things I think you can do for someone who is experiencing or has experienced hardship of any kind is to to listen, to let them share their story, and then to empathize, and um, and 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 grieve with them. Um, but I think that grieving with is is important. Um, when I mm. first realized I was gay, I did not want to be gay. I wanted to be anything but gay. Um, and so for me at that time, and I've you know, mentioned this multiple times, that that um, for me, being gay felt like a disease. It was something I didn't want. And now I don't feel that way. Um, it's because I'm gay that I've had many wonderful experiences in life. It's because I'm gay that God was able to use me in certain ways in life um i don't i wouldn't be the same person if if i weren't gay and so um i certainly don't want anybody to grieve that i'm gay because i'm not grieving that i'm gay um but but i have experienced uh some painful situations brought on by people's responses to my being gay and those are appropriate things for people to grieve with
0: that's really good last question and then we'll do a summation um could Justin and Preston express what's the worst that could happen to the church if it took the other's point of view as right and good quote unquote right and good
1: I I've always said um people assume that I do this work uh Because I, you know, want to, I care about LGBTQ folks and want to defend LGBTQ folks. And I do (laughs) care about LGBTQ folks. And I do want to defend anybody who is being hurt for any reason. Um, But the reason that I do this work in the church, ultimately, is because I love the church. And because my fear is that if we don't get this right um that that the church will die in our culture yeah. um if you imagine what would have happened to the church if after we as a as a culture recognized that we had been wrong about slavery and abolished slavery if the church today, I mean, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Church, which is still America's largest Protestant denomination, split off from other Baptists, now the uh, American Baptists, um, over slavery. Mm-hmm. Southern Baptists were on the wrong... My church, Southern Baptists, and I, I don't go to a Southern Baptist Church anymore, but it was. it's the church that raised me. It's the church that brought me to Christ. Southern Baptists were on the wrong side of slavery. Now, Southern Baptists eventually... Recognize that and and change their position. But if you can imagine, if Southern Baptists or Christians in general in this country had not changed their minds on slavery, and if we had, if we still to this day, if Christians still held that slavery was okay, was good, as the rest of the culture had recognized that it was wrong, um, I think the church would be dead or almost dead. Um, because, because people would look at the church and go, you know, they wouldn't talk about it in terms of the fruit, <laughs> but, but they would be looking at the fruit. They would be looking at the fruit of the church and going, why do I want to be part of that? Um, Christians are not always going to be in line with the culture. Um, in many cases, you know, we, we need to have, uh, higher standards than the culture. We there, There's a reason that our allegiance is to Christ and not to our culture. But um, but we ought to always be the folks who are filled with so much love and grace that the culture looks at us. And even if they think we're weird, even if they think that some of our beliefs are strange, that they at least see that love of God radiating from us. Mm-hmm. And right now, um, we're in a culture that increasingly looks at us. And what they see radiating from us is politics Condescension, um, bigotry, um, pointing fingers at other people, you know, everything that's not Christ. And if that continues, uh, then I, I don't have high hopes for the church to continue to be influential in our culture. And I don't mean to say that I think that the body of Christ. Will cease to exist. I mean, I, I think that Christ will continue working in the world, and the Spirit will continue working in the world as long as there is a world. But um, there's no guarantee that the church will continue to have any kind of influence in in this country, for instance. And that's 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 what I truly am afraid of.
0: So we were going to close our conversation with asking the question. Um, the soul of Christianity, which is part of the title, like what's at stake in this conversation. And it feels like you've actually just answered that. That, And I just want to affirm, <laughs> again, using these terminologies, I'm so grateful that you articulated that. It does feel as if the focus of these conversations, specifically around LGBT issues, um, and... Theologies and stuff is just so focused on the sex part, is so focused on that particular, but I really have so appreciated your approach to this um, from a whole church perspective, this beautiful, um, broken, <laughs> wild, crazy thing we call the church that is supposed to be the representation of God's love and grace in this world. And... and your articulation of that and your commitment to that is really just inspiring and beautiful, and I just want to um, honor you in that. And I hope that people listening to this and people engaged in the conversation would would see that that really is what is at stake. Um, is there anything else? Like, uh, like I said, this is how we were going to sum it up. Like, what what really is at stake? What it really is the soul of Christianity? Is there anything you wanted to sum up and uh, at at the end of this? Any other additional words or thoughts or perspective? I mean, you summed it up so well, but...
1: <laughs> well, I think the only other thing is, is I'll just say again, that I believe that um, in the midst of this disagreement, uh, the, the, the stakes are high, and so this is not a, a non-issue of a disagreement. But if we can't treat each other with grace and mercy and love... Um, even when the stakes are high, then we're not representing Christ. And so my hope is that even even while we recognize that the stakes are high, even while we recognize that this matters a lot, that that we need to continue to have these conversations in ways that respect that that those who disagree with us are doing so um, often with very good intentions. Um, are also beloved by God and and that we find ways to work to to make the church um, what it should be as a as a loving and, and gracious um, vehicle for, for, for God's mercy and love in the world uh, you know, even as we work through some of these difficult questions.
0: yeah. Justin, your gift. I thank you so much for, I mean, you spend a lot of time with me today in the follow-up conversation. You spend a lot of time uh, in preparation and doing the event with us uh, last week. Um, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for for being our friend. Thank you for being the voice that you are. Um, Thanks for spending some time having a conversation. I hope some of this pushes us towards those end goals uh, for all the people that are listening.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm just so grateful for your uh your your wonderful uh, gracious approach to all sorts of things and your great church which is just awesome and uh have many wonderful things to say about you so thanks for doing
0: this uh, my pleasure thanks